anyone who has children or nieces or nephews or cousins or grandkids has at some point or another watched a younger member of the clan do something and said, oh, they get that from, and then you'll mention somebody. They get that from their Aunt Jane. They get that from their crazy Uncle Scott. You know, they get, you know, or even, even looks. For uh, some of my younger years, I had a mustache. And one time, somebody was talking to my little sister. They hadn't seen me for a long time. And they said, by the way, Susie, how's Scott doing? And she told him, and they said, what's he look like these days? Oh, that's easy. He looks like mom with a mustache. Because uh, I have the, the features of my mother's family, the Barry family, and, and, all, and we, we see that. Uh, it's a proven fact in our home, a proven fact, well-documented, that th- our three children got all of their not-so-stellar traits from me. It's a proven fact. Uh, ask my wife. She'll tell you. When we make those observations, whether we know it or not, we're pointing to the fact that in some way, in a very deep and sometimes hard-to-explain way, There are traits and habits and inclinations that we all have that are somehow deep within the gene pool. Um, Charlene and I, about a year or so ago, read slash listened to a book with an intriguing title. The title was, It Didn't Start With You. And the subtitle was, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle. It was written by Mark Wolin. And uh, his premise was, some of times, was along the same lines that I've illustrated that he says, you know, and his focus was on trauma, and he said there's a sense in which family members far removed from us have experienced trauma, and somehow that experience gets passed down. Now, I did not agree with all of his conclusions, But the idea was interesting that somehow we inherit the the trauma just like we inherit the traits of our family members. And as I was thinking about Romans 5 and where we're at today, those kind of thoughts were going through my head. You see, if we're going to fully understand Romans 5, and and I would say if we're going to fully understand and, and understand the Bible when we read it, then... We need to work to not see the Bible from a purely individualistic mindset. You see, we live here, we we live in what's called the West. From Western Europe into the United States, it gets called the West. And the West is individual. You know that. We talk about rugged individualism. You know, and, and we talk about, you know, I did this, and I proved this, and I did that. We're individuals. Everything about America is being an individual. Capitalism is about individual growth, and, and some of that's good and some of it's not. But we live in community, and our actions impact the community. In the Bible... Community and family and heritage were vastly important. And in the Bible, the actions of one individual had an impact 
in sometimes really startling ways over the whole community, the whole family. On the positive side, in the book of Acts, chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in prison and they sing and the earthquake comes and they get loose and the jailer's going to take his life because he thoughts everybody he thinks everybody has left. And, you know, there's that famous line, Paul tells him, we're all here. And the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul tells him to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they go home and the jailer is baptized and all his household. His decision made a decision for the household. That's how it worked in the first century. But you could turn that clock back. Go back all the way to Joshua on a negative side to the city of Jericho. And the nation marches around the city. The walls collapse. God says everything in this city, all the plunder, all the spoil is reserved for me. And there's one guy, his name was Achan, and he grabbed a couple of robes and some silver and he took and he hid it under his tent where God wouldn't see it. And eventually, God did see it, and they go to war at Ai, and they get beaten, and they come back, and they say, God, what's going on? And he says, there's sin in the camp, and they get it all down to where Achan comes, and they bring Achan and his family, everybody, including his livestock, and they bring them together, and all of them are executed because his one action impacted all of the family. That kind of corporate reality is really strange for our ears to hear. It's a way of thinking that for us is not normative, but for them it was. The Bible was written in a time in which there was this collective sense, and we need to understand that, not just today, that's going to be very important, you'll see in a minute, but in any time we read the Bible, we need to take it, it's not about me, it's about us, it's about God working in us, through us, with us. Last week we saw the benefit of being justified by grace and finding true peace with God. Today we're going to look at the larger question, why does one need peace with God? Why is that important? And I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I would encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 5 and listen as I read verses 12 through 21. Romans 5 Verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to the, from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man's death, of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness 
reign and the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification for the life and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the disobedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is a lot there, and we're going to try to unpack some of that today. Another phrase that Charlene and I gleaned from another book we read several years ago is a phrase that helps us when we're in conversation to know that the story that we are about to share is going to take a lot of twists and turns in the road, but eventually we're going to get to a point, but you got to stay with the story. And, And that little phrase is, we'll start the conversation by saying, I'm going to be spaghetti here. You think about spaghetti. Spaghetti on a plate is just twisted and turned around, and and eventually you get to the point, you get to the meatball. But it takes a while to get there. you got to get through the spaghetti. And and so, in a sense, when Paul begins in Romans 5.12, he begins with this very clear point. Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sin. And then, from verses 13 to 17, he goes all spaghetti on us. And he has this long parenthetical statement that just kind of weaves around. And then back by the time he gets to verse 18, he's back to the point. Let me show you how that works. I'm going to read verses five, verse 5, 12, and then I'm going to skip over to verse 18, verse, part B. And you'll see how this works. Paul says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin... And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. So also, righteous, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. That's his point. Okay, we're going to talk about verses 13 to 17, but that's his point. Sin entered the world through one man, but justification resulted in the life and death of one man. In chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, the point that Paul wants us to understand, I believe, is simply this. In some way, all humanity is included in Adam's disobedience. Now, I could go off and spend the next hour talking to you about federal federal headship or seminal headship and this and that. Scholars go back and forth. How did that happen? And the bottom line is, in some way, that we're not going to try to dissect today, in some way we are all under and included in Adam's disobedience. Paul's statement is quite clear. Through one man's sin, through one man, sin entered the world. Uh, The rest of this section tells us he's talking about Adam. Now, one thing we have to keep in mind, the Hebrew word Adam is a word that could be a proper name, but it's also a word that means human. 
And since when, so when you see Adam, it, it could be humanity or it could be a person. For our study here, because of what Paul's doing here, we'll look at it as Adam in Genesis 3, when sin enters the world, Adam is the representative of humanity. And in that collective sense, that was clear throughout the ancient world, his act of disobedience was disastrous for all. Real quick. Just a quick side note. Because Paul focuses on Adam here, does not absolve Eve. She actually, in 1 Timothy 2.14, is also called a sinner and a transgressor. Each stepped outside the boundary that God had set. God said in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17, Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you do, you will die. And it's important to see that because, in a sense, that was God's law. That was the rule. And Adam and Eve chose to act on their own accord. They chose to partake of the fruit following the conversation with the serpent. And the result of that transgression was sin. And you know it's interesting. If you read the book of Genesis and you read along and you get to Genesis chapter 5 and verse 5, it ends this way, and Adam died. Now, he lived 900 and some years, but eventually he died. But when it says death came upon all, death is not just physical death. Death is that, but death is separation. When a loved one dies, we are separated from them. And the same happens when we are disobedient to God's command. When there was disobedient to God's command, there was a spiritual rift. There was a spiritual separation from God. And as a result, all of humanity faced this idea of death. Death came to all, for all have sinned, all do sin, all will sin. Sin Falling short of God's ideal or God's glory is part and parcel of the human experience since Adam. That's why Paul says, we saw it earlier in chapter 3, For all have sinned and missed the mark, fallen short of the glory of God. And so from this point, Paul then launches into this parenthetical statement. And what he's going to do in verses 13 to 17 is explain the connection between sin without the law before the Mosaic law was written and sin under the law. No one really knows how much time hap took place between Adam and the giving of the law beginning in Exodus 20. Conservative estimates are about 2,500 years. Paul's first point in verse 13 helps readers understand his argument. Before the law was given, there was still sin. Now, what he says is, uh, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. Sin was there. Humanity, before Jesus come, or God comes along and says, thou shalt not lie, people were lying. Before God comes along and says, thou shalt not steal, people were stealing. So the sin was already there. 
It was there from the beginning of Adam. God says, thou shalt not murder. Well, you go to Genesis 4, and the first thing that happens out of the garden is murder. You know, it's just like, wow. It's, it's so it was already there. That's Paul's point. Humanity seems bent towards self-centered living, apart from any connection or dependency on God. And that seems to be ingrained in the human condition. My mother used to tell a story about me when I was a baby. She would tell people that when I was a, a child, a baby, and she would put me in my crib to go to sleep at night, that I would, she'd put me down and I would start crying. And I would be crying until she came walking toward the room and she said, as soon as I heard her footsteps, I quit crying. And uh, she uses that to point out my depravity. Uh, because she said it was, for her, it seemed like I was only crying to get her attention. And when it seemed like I was getting what I thought I wanted, I quit crying. And so my mom came up with a phrase that came into our house too. Uh, let's see, F burp, diapered, fed, put him to bed. And it was the idea that, you know, once I've taken care of all the needs of my child and put them to bed, I will let them cry a little bit because it's not unhealthy for them. Now, you can debate my mom's child rearing all you want. I think I turned out pretty good. But uh, that's that idea. I had that bent of selfishness. I want, I want, I want. I've told you many times, I never had to teach my children to say mine. But I had to teach them to share. We have that bent. And that's the point Paul's saying is that sin was already there. Before there was a law that said this is sin, it was there. There was always this sense of what's right. And if you don't think that, look at God's punishment. Genesis 6, the flood. Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. God dealt with sin. Now there was a thought, especially in first century Judaism, that the law was the key, and apart from the law, nobody really dealt with sin. And so Paul kind of attacks that a little bit. He said, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Paul says people lived and died and took advantage of one another and violated standards of human decency and dignity and they were all the time in the pattern set by Adam all the way up to Moses. We have a natural bent against God. We want to be independent. We want to be our own gods. That's what the serpent was saying to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. You'll be like God. We want to be our own gods. The, the, that pattern continues to be dealt with. And there's a cycle that seems to happen. There's a cycle that it goes like this. Law, sin, death. Law, here's the rule. Don't eat from this tree. Here's the sin. Oh, I want to eat from that tree. I'm going to do that. And now, oh, you're separated from God and you're out of the garden. But in verses 15 through 17, Paul reminds us of a second very important reality. Grace 
is the game changer. Grace is the game changer. Beginning in verse 14, Paul says, Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin, breaking a command as did Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? When you read verses 15, 16, and 17, you have two words that just pop up repeatedly. One is gift and one is grace. They come from the same root word. They have the same strength of meaning. They're used interchangeably here. Adam's pattern was a pattern of of law, sin, death. But the new pattern, the different pattern, is a pattern of grace and a pattern of life and a pattern of acceptance. The new pattern begins not with sin, but with the contrast between God's gift and Adam's humanity. See, due to Adam, many died. For 2,500 years or more, everyone eventually died, except for Enoch. And it was the pattern set by Adam. By contrast, Jesus comes along and he is the gift. Listen to verse 15 from the message. Yet the rescuing gift is not exactly parallel to the death-dealing sin. If one man's sin puts crowds of people at the death end abyss of separation from God, then just think what God's gift poured out through one man, Jesus Christ, will do. There is no comparison between the death-dealing sin and this generous life-giving gift. The contrasts are stark. They're incomparable. The disobedience of Adam results in condemnation, death reigning. The obedience of Jesus brings justification, acquittal, as it were, and and results in grace and righteousness and a life-reigning existence. We need to be very careful here, though. We need to note something here. Notice in verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and this gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? The results of Adam, the results of Adam's act placed on all, but Christ's act that he does, the results aren't automatic. Notice that? Those who receive God's abundant provision. Humanity is very illogical sometimes. We'll see that in chapter 6 and verse 1 where it says, well, wow, if grace abounds because of sin, we just ought to go sin because then God, no, that's not the point. But the idea of receiving God's abundant provision is another grace of God. God doesn't force himself on us but he offers himself to us. God, in a sense, honors 
the free will he's bestowed upon us. God created us with the ability to choose. God created us with free will. And so he, he honors that. He dignifies us by giving us the ability to receive his gift. You know, in Genesis 2, Adam and Eve were given a choice. Their choice was stay within God's boundaries and enjoy all of the benefits of the tree of life. See, I believe humanity wasn't created to automatically be eternal. That would make us God. Humanity was created not to live forever, but we were created dependent. And long life was a privilege that was available to early humanity through eating from the tree of life. The tree of life wasn't off limits for Adam and Eve. Only the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So when they crossed the boundary that God had set and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they lost the privilege of eating from the tree of life. And so death reigned. God didn't have to do anything to rectify the sin of Adam. God did not have to give Adam more life. God could have erased, wiped it down, washed, rinsed, and let's start it over. But in His grace, He provided. In His grace, He allowed. In His grace, He set on course something that would bring us to the person of Christ. And that's why we have the abundance of grace and gift in this section. We need to camp on the reality of God's grace in our lives. And so Paul wraps all of this up, coming to verse 18, with this final reality. Jesus Christ is the only door to God's fullest benefits. The end of verse 17 points us to Jesus. That's where Paul's been heading. We took that little spaghetti route. Now we're coming into the conclusion. And, and so he picks it up. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people, so also, just as sin, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Just as one trespass condemned all, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. And verse 19 just reiterates the point to drive it home. Just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. We have a choice. Our choice is the way of Adam. The way of humanity, the way of self, or the way of Jesus. Our choice is the way of separation from God and being the captain of my own, uh, my own fate and doing it on my own. Or it's the way of life with God and having a friend that's always with me and having a God who says, I never leave you or forsake you and having one who walks with me through the good and the bad having one who, who gives me that ability to sing in the good times and to sing in the bad. We have a choice. The law worked. The law served a purpose, 
Paul says the law was brought in so the trespass might increase. Let me put it another way. The law showed us what sin was. And it worked. It did its job. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. You can't outdo God's grace. You can't. And you don't deserve God's grace. But He gives it anyway. See, only God can reverse the curse of sin. That's what verse 21 says. So just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law shows us in very stark terms that we're sinners. The law made it so no one could say they're ignorant of sin. The law gave opportunity for God's grace to be magnified to a greater extent so that we would see the wonders of His grace. And that brings us to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Last week I I quoted from uh, Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace. I love the first chapter in that book. It's called The Last Great Word. And Yancey postulates that grace is the last great word. You know, we use it all the time. You know, and, and sometimes we use it uh, in, in a way that, you know, for instance, if you go to a restaurant today and the server brings you the bill, you add a gratuity to it. Now, the fact is you wouldn't have to do that. Now, in our, you know, the way we twist things, we've made it expected. But the purpose of a gratuity is to just add a little extra to the server to say thank you. Thank you for serving. You know, if you get your insurance bill, uh, mine came due for our auto insurance, uh, and they give me the date that it's due, but sometimes they give me a grace period. Okay, it's due on this date, but we'll honor the price if, uh, if you even pay it two weeks later. It's a grace period. We use the word all the time. I don't deserve a grace period. It's due on the day it's due. Pay it. You know, but we get that. So God says, I give you my grace. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve this cross that my son died on. But I gave it to you. And all I ask you to do is open up your arms and receive the gift of my son. And you will have life. Periodically, at your workplace, maybe at school, Maybe uh, you have a time of evaluation. At work, we call it the annual performance review. For us as students, or those of us who have been students, it's the dreaded parent-teacher conference. Now, when I was a kid, I didn't get to go to parent-teacher conference. Now they do these student-directed conferences, which we did with some of our kids. But when I was a kid, my mom and dad would go and it was very interesting. So one day somebody asked, again, my little sister, she always had, always had the good quips, Su- Susie, how come your mom and dad always come together? 
you know, usually it's just the mom that comes to the, especially the afternoon parent-teacher conferences where we got off. Susie goes, oh, well, dad comes to protect the teacher from mom. But, <laughs> so, but you know, and, and then it was like you wait at home on pins and needles till they come back. These performance reviews. And typically you walk away from any sort of performance review with a list of things that you're doing well and some things that you can improve on, some goals for the future. I think this section in Romans has been kind of like a divine performance review. On the one hand, as those who are humans, just as Adam, we discover in very stark ways that we missed the mark, and we discover it's part and parcel of who we are. I'm a human being. I am destined to miss God's mark because of what I inherited in some way from Adam. And in fact... I discover that I have missed the mark so badly, I can never, ever recover on my own. As one writer put it, we discover that we are more sinful than we ever dared believe. And that's especially in light of God's holiness. But I do not want us to leave this room in despair. Because God has taken care of the debt of sin. I don't know if you've ever had a debt taken care of. It's amazing. It's amazing. I probably told you this story before. It chokes me up every time I think about it. Charlene and I were dating and it was and it was her senior year. She's way smarter than I am. We're the same age, but I was a freshman, she was a senior. She just that smart. And uh, she had, for a variety of reasons, she needed to go to the, the finance department at Moody Bible Institute and ask them for a loan, an in-house loan, to finish off her senior year. And so we're coming down to the end of the year, and uh, it's, we're, in, we're in the month of May, there's a few weeks left of school, and she comes into the dining room where she worked, and she had a letter and the letter said her debt was forgiven. Her loan had been canceled. Her loan had been forgiven. She owed the school nothing. What, it was just an amazing time. And, and what gets me is our, our lunch director, Ava Parker. Ava was a good and godly woman. And she kind of adopted, she and Headley never had any children, so she adopted those of us in the dining room as kind of her children. And we all celebrated Charlene. And Charlene said a few minutes later, Ava came around. She put her arm around her. And she said, Charlene, just remember, to whom much is given, much is required. That stuck with us to the point that when we had our third child, our son, his middle name is Parker. To just honor that woman and her husband that meant so much to us. God has taken care of your debt. He's already made a way for us not to strive to make the grade. And that same writer says this, and I want this to echo in your heart today. We are more accepted in Christ than we ever 
dared hope. Would you believe that today? You are more accepted in Christ than you ever dared hope. Some of us wrestle with, am I enough? Am I good enough? And the gospel says, and grace says, yes, you are because of Jesus Christ. In some way, humanity was included in Adam's disobedience. But God, in his grace, changed the game He opened a door of acceptance and forgiveness and hope and relationship through Jesus Christ who died so we can live. That's what we're going to celebrate in a few minutes at the Lord's table this morning. If you got the email this week, you notice I added a bonus track at the very end. Uh, I just want to play the or say the chorus This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You laid down your life. That I would be set free. Oh Jesus, I sing for all you've done for me. Rest in God's amazing grace this morning father thank you for your word thank you for your grace thank you for your gift of jesus thank you for your sustaining power in our lives i pray this morning that we would walk away from this place believing that we are more accepted in grace than we could ever hope or imagine. And we will give you the glory and the honor and the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.